In December 2019, the Rexburg, Idaho Police Department issued a press release about two missing children, Tylee Ryan and J.J. Vallow. As the case rapidly unfolded in the media, people were drawn into a story of deaths, disappearances, and a doomsday cult. But the people who know where Tylee and J.J. are aren't talking. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. All right, welcome to the most highly requested episode I have ever had. And I hear you out there, those of you who like the more recent cases. You know I like to make long episodes. And ongoing cases often don't have enough information or they're moving too fast. By the time I release it, it's already out of date. But I heard you all loud and clear, and I will try to work in a few more here and there. This case, the disappearance of Tylee Ryan and J.J. Vallow, stuck out to me when it first hit the headlines because of the location, Rexburg, Idaho. Most of you probably don't know, but I briefly went to BYU, Idaho. I know that sometimes surprises people because I'm not exactly the most pious person out there, but I did, in fact, freeze myself to the core for three semesters before I moved to Oklahoma. Not a lot happens in Rexburg. It is a college town, but it is a conservative one. The edgy thing to do on Friday nights was to find the one theater in town that played R-rated movies. It has changed since I was out there for sure, But when I heard Rexburg and Doomsday Cult, I realized it probably hasn't changed that much. I do want to credit the website Analytics and its author Annie Cushing for a lot of the information as she has organized the various news reports into a timeline on her website. It made it very easy to access the information I needed for quite a bit of this. Not everything, but it is thorough. Annie had initially asked not to be credited when people used her timeline. She was keeping it in a private Facebook group. She is related to the family. She is Tylee Ryan's aunt. But enough media outlets have since ignored that request that she eventually made the timeline public on her website, allowing me to credit her hard work. She's also started speaking out more in interviews, trying to find these kids. Like many people in Tylee and JJ's families, she's just trying to deal with the publicity around the case the best she can, while still focusing on advocating for these missing children, cutting through all the drama and the noise to find these kids. And she is doing a great job. Another major source was the Dateline special on the case because they had interviews with a number of people close to Lori and Chad, and that includes Annie. I do promise I'm not just here regurgitating the Dateline episode, though it did occur to me how much easier podcasting would be if that's what I did. So this case, as I'm looking at this information, the news reports that I found, the ones I found on Annie's website, the Dateline episode, The first question is, where in the world do we even start with this case? 
And I think the best place to start is with Lori Vallow, the 46-year-old mother of the missing children. Lori married for the first time rather young, marrying her high school boyfriend in 1992, shortly after graduation. The marriage was short-lived, and in October 1995, Lori remarried, and she married a man named William LaJoya in Texas. In 1996, they had a son together named Colby, and at the end of that year, William filed for divorce. It took until 1998 for the divorce to be finalized, and in 2001, Lori married for the third time. This time, she married Joseph Ryan, and Lori was around 28 years old at this point. Joe adopted Colby, and the two then had a child together in September 2002, a daughter named Tylee. The marriage fell apart within a few years, and Joe filed for divorce in 2004. A year later, the divorce was finalized. In February 2006, Lori married for the fourth time in Las Vegas. She married a successful businessman, 16 years her senior, named Charles Vallow, father to two adult sons. Tylee was still little, and Lori was in the middle of a contentious custody battle with Tylee's father, Joe. And contentious may actually be an understatement. Lori had violated court-ordered visitation multiple times, keeping Tylee away from Joe for over a year at one point. Lori claimed Joe was abusive to Tylee, but a court-appointed therapist believed Lori was pushing Tylee into making accusations against her father. At one point, Lori had to submit to a psychological exam after she told a social worker that death was an option before she let Tylee have a single visit with her father. The results of that psych exam have not been released, of course, and they didn't interfere with Lori's custody. She maintained custody of Tylee. On August 5th, 2007, in Texas, Joe showed up for a visit with Tylee. It was supervised, and as the visit finished, for some reason, Lori's brother Alex and Joe got into it. Alex pulled a stun gun and used it on Joe. Joe fell, injuring his back and his wrist, and Alex was arrested. Alex admitted in court to what he did, and he spent three months in jail for the assault. He also had to pay restitution to Joe. It's not entirely clear how things settled with the custody issues, except to say that Lori ended up with primary custody of Tylee. At some point in 2012, Charles and Lori moved to Arizona with Colby and Tylee. In May 2012, Charles' sister Kay became a grandmother when her son's girlfriend had a baby boy. They named him Joshua Jackson and called him JJ. His parents could not care for him. He was very small. I think he was just over two pounds when he was born. He was born with drugs in his system. And Kay and her husband Larry took him in. Now, they were absolutely enamored with this little guy, but they really could not take care of him full time. They were just not in a place of being full time parents again. And JJ had special needs, having been born with the drugs in his system. And he would later be diagnosed with autism and ADHD. 
The obvious solution appeared when Lori and Charles offered to adopt little JJ. Tylee was 10, and Lori and Charles had been amazing parents to their blended family. Charles's older kids, Lori's older son, and Tylee, they were active. Lori had the time and attention to give to JJ to meet his needs, and the family, frankly, had the means to pay for interventions and private schools and specialized therapies. Even better, Kay and Larry could stay in JJ's life in their role as his grandparents, which is what they really wanted. In 2014, the adoption was finalized. Not long after they wrapped up the adoption, Charles and Lori took JJ and Tylee to Hawaii. Lori's older son was an adult by this point, and from what it sounds like, he didn't move with them. Living in Hawaii was something Charles had always wanted to do, so it was no surprise when they moved there. While in Hawaii, they were active in their local church. They were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And Lori started getting into a book series that was written by an LDS author named Chad Daybell. It was a fictional series about a family preparing for the end of times. Lori son Colby said that the second coming of Christ and the end of the world as we know it were things Lori talked about throughout his childhood, but she wasn't fanatical about it, at least not yet. Now, I will say that this is a doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that we are in the latter days. Christ will be returning. We need to prepare for it. But that generally means preparing spiritually and preparing like food storage. There's kind of this line between LDS preparation and doomsday prepper preparation. There's a line. Lori, at least as Colby was growing up, was solidly on the LDS side of that line. But after two years in Hawaii, Charles was finding it hard to manage his business from the island, so the family moved back to Arizona. This would have been late 2016, early 2017. Things from the outside seemed all quiet in the family until April 3rd, 2018, when Lori's ex-husband, who was Tylee's dad, died of a heart attack in Gilbert, Arizona, not that far from where Lori and Charles lived. For some reason, the ME could not find next of kin other than Lori and Tylee, so they called her and left messages asking Lori to call them back. She never did. And she never reached out to Joe's family to tell them that he had died, even though she had their contact information. It was over a month after Joe's death that the funeral home finally got in touch with a family member to ask what was going on and to make sure they were notified of his death. So Joe ended up not even having a funeral at this point because they were not able to get in touch with anybody. When Joe's sister, Annie, found out about Joe's death, she called and she emailed Lori, assuming Lori and Tylee also didn't know. Lori finally called her back, and that's when Annie found out Lori had known the whole time. It was shocking to Annie that Lori didn't seem to care enough to reach out and tell them. Over the phone, Lori asked Annie if she could come out to visit and help support Tylee through the loss of her father. 
And Annie was quite understandably very upset. She was so upset with Lori for not telling her about her brother's death. But she went out there anyway in May of 2018 because this wasn't about her and it wasn't about Lori. It was about Tylee. Annie was alarmed at Lori's talk about the end of times during this visit. One statement in particular that stood out to her, Lori said the apocalypse would be so scary that she sometimes thought it would be better to take the kids and drive them all off a cliff so they wouldn't have to experience it. When Annie expressed shock that she would even say something like that, Lori backpedaled and she kind of lightened it up, said, of course, she'd never hurt her kids. She didn't mean it that way. She didn't mean it seriously. Overall, Annie said that the Lori she was seeing on this visit was not the person she had known since 2002. Lori had always been warm and funny and charming, and now she just seemed so hyper-focused on the apocalypse and somewhat devoid of emotion in other directions. Lori found it more pressing to warn Annie about the end of times than she did to tell her about Joe's death or express empathy over Annie's grief. Everything was about the doomsday. And Annie's perception was spot on. Lori was getting deeper into the end of days doctrines. She believed the second coming of Christ was imminent and that it was time to prepare for it. And Lori did what a lot of us did in 2017 and 2018 when we had a strong interest in something. She started listening to podcasts about it. Chad Daybell, the LDS author she liked, was a regular guest on the podcast circuit. And Lori became more involved with other listeners and other doomsday preppers online. The podcast that is associated most with Chad is called Preparing a People. And I'm not kidding you that when I say the quote-unquote cult that people keep talking about Lori joining, this is actually a group of podcast listeners. Now, Chad did not own Preparing a People. He did not run Preparing a People. He was just one of the better-known speakers that they would use for events and podcasts and that sort of thing. And Lori attended a prepper event in Arizona in late 2018, which is when she finally met Chad in person. On December 5th, they did a Preparing the People podcast together. Before we go on, I want to say that the parent company that puts on these events and the podcast called Preparing a People did put out a statement on the case. They do not want their brand wrapped up in anything Lori and Chad may have done criminally speaking. They said that they do not share any extremist beliefs that Lori and Chad might have that are contrary to Christian principles. They support principles of honesty. They do seem to be distancing themselves from this. They even pulled all the podcast episodes that had Chad and Lori on them. While I think this specific prepper group is being portrayed in some spaces as the cult that lured Lori away, I don't think it's quite that organized. I think Chad had taken his platform and he used preparing a people to enhance his platform. 
He took the foundational beliefs of doomsday preppers. He kind of mixed them up, and he's gone off in his own direction with them. Now, I understand why preparing the people company wants to distance themselves from this. Lori and Chad are being accused of criminal behavior, but they're also teaching almost their own type of religion, and it's not really in line with the company. Though I do not, in my view, think the company and the podcast are some central cult, I do believe that's how Chad built his following, if you want to even call it a following. But you know what? Before we get any further into Chad and Lori together as a unit, we're going to back this bus up and talk about Chad Daybell. Chad grew up in Utah in an LDS family, and he went on his mission to New Jersey. Assuming he went at the usual time, way back in the day, he would have been 19 when he left and served two years before returning home. And on his mission, Chad was exemplary. He wasn't cocky and charming the way you might imagine some doomsday cult leader being. He was kind and he was humble and people were attracted to that. After his mission, he went to Brigham Young University where he met his wife, Tammy. They married in 1990. Chad graduated with a bachelor's in communication and initially started off his career as a reporter in Springville, Utah. But then Chad took an unexpected job change and he became the caretaker for a cemetery in Springville. For the four years he worked there, Chad reported having a number of paranormal experiences, and he came under the belief that he had some special ability to see into the spirit world to receive visions. And this may be simplifying his experiences a bit too much, but that is the gist of it. Chad also said he had two near-death experiences, with the first one being when he was just 17 years old. And these experiences also opened him up to this insight. Chad and Tammy went on to have five children. The couple seemed to have a great marriage. They were inseparable. They were happy. Their household seemed stable. Their children seemed happy. And Chad started getting into writing his end-of-days fiction books, as well as some nonfiction books about his spiritual experiences. And he ended up starting a publishing company, and he published other people's books along the same vein. In 2015, Chad heard a voice telling him to move to Rexburg, Idaho. At the time, they were living in Utah. The voice came twice. And Chad believed that Rexburg was the right place for his family to write out the apocalypse and to wait for the second coming. Personally, I would recommend finding a place with a longer growing season if you need to be self-sufficient somewhere, but I'm not a prepper, so what do I know? The Daybells moved to Salem, Idaho, which is just outside of Rexburg. It is north by Sugar City. Tammy got a job as a school librarian and helped Chad run his publishing company. She designed covers, she managed the books, and Chad continued to speak at prepper events and go on podcasts. And so now we're back to where and when and how he met Lori Vallow. Lori's marriage to Charles was beginning to fall apart. Charles was genuinely concerned 
that Lori was having a mental health crisis due to how obsessed she was becoming with the end of times and statements she would make about her beliefs. She believed that she and Chad were elevated beings, somewhere above normal humans. Sometimes it's being reported that she believes she's a god. She had a mission on Earth, and that was to gather the 144,000 preordained to get into heaven. This number comes from the Book of Revelations. It is not unique to the LDS faith. But Lori and Chad's interpretation of this number is not exactly in line with those beliefs. Now, the LDS belief is that the 144,000 referenced in Revelations are high priests who are supposed to bring people to God. Not that they're the only ones who are going to survive. They are the only ones going to heaven. And I will admit that I have not read everything out there on this topic as far as LDS beliefs go, but looking at my old books, I don't think the church teaches that the 144,000 are exalted beings like Lori believed she was. They were high priests. And the church has high priests now who are not exalted beings. They're just people. So I'm not entirely sure where she and Chad are getting that. It's not in line with LDS teachings as far as I know. Now, Charles was aware that Lori was having some type of relationship with Chad Daybell. He told his sister Kay that Lori was taking videos of herself dancing and then sending them to Chad, who, like we've established, was also married. Here's where things really kick off, and a lot of the information comes from court records that Charles Vallow filed. To some degree, we're only hearing his side of the story, but there is some proof you know, some receipts to back this up. Charles and Lori owned a retirement planning and financial investment firm. Charles was the managing partner. But because Lori was a co-owner, she had access to all the business accounts. On January 28th and 29th, 2019, she made three transfers of money out of the business account. She put it into their personal account. And then She took it from the personal account and moved it to another account that she established that Charles did not have access to. The total she took was $35,000. Charles was livid, obviously. He told her she had to put the money back. That money was to make payroll that week. She did not put it back. And Charles contacted the bank to get them to stop or reverse the transfers. But they said they couldn't do it. Lori had permission as a signatory on the accounts to move it. So there was nothing they could do. On the 29th, during a phone call, Lori reportedly told Charles that she had a mission. It was that thing about gathering the 144,000. If Charles got in her way, Lori said she would kill him. Then on January 30th, the next day, Charles left Arizona for a very quick business trip to Texas. While he was there, he spoke to Lori on the phone again, and she kept calling him Nick Schneider. He asked, who is Nick Schneider? And Lori said, according to Charles, of course, 
that Nick killed Charles and took on his identity. And then she told him she was definitely going to kill him when he got back from his business trip and that angels would dispose of his body. Charles did not immediately call the police about these threats because he really thought Lori needed help, not that she was a danger to him. When he got to the airport in Texas to fly home after this business trip, he found out that his return ticket had been canceled by Lori. He paid for a new ticket, which cost something like $600, and when he got to the Phoenix airport, he couldn't find his truck in the parking lot. Lori and a friend had driven to the airport and, using the spare key, took the truck and hid it. It would be three days before she told Charles where it was. A friend gave Charles a ride home from the airport, and then he found his house completely empty. Lori had left him, took the kids, and took pretty much everything they owned, including Charles's personal belongings. And I'm talking, she took his underwear. She cleared it out. Now Charles is trying to call Lori a bunch of times, and she's not answering. When she finally did answer, she told him that she was in a hotel with the kids. Lori then said that she would bring JJ to school the next day, where Charles could pick him up and keep him. Lori's mission on this earth was too important, and she told Charles she was done with the marriage, and she couldn't keep JJ. She just didn't want custody. Charles managed to get J.J. from the school, but he couldn't get Lori to turn over J.J.'s medications or his iPad that he used for his specialized apps that covered social stories, routine tracking, calming exercises, those sort of things. And when you have a six-year-old with autism and ADHD, these things are pretty important. But Lori just completely stopped responding. Charles had nothing of J.J.'s except what he had with him at school that day. And because Lori had drained their accounts, Charles didn't even have the money to replace any of it, including the medication. But this pickup at school was not without incident. Lori claimed that while she was dropping J.J. off at the school on the 31st, Charles stole her purse out of her car. He told the police that he had found it in the parking lot. They asked why he didn't give it back to her, and he had a bunch of excuses, but he did return it because he was basically told he was going to be charged with theft if he didn't. I'm sure this was not easy for Charles to swallow, seeing as Lori had just stolen $35,000 from their business and he's going to get charged with theft over taking her purse. Charles filed a petition to have Lori involuntarily held at a psychiatric facility. The Chandler police told her that she could either be taken involuntarily and held, or she could go voluntarily and just speak with the staff and let them evaluate her. Because when the police showed up, Lori seemed calm and rational to them. Then on February 4th, Charles filed for an order of protection against Lori based on the threat she had made. In the document, he mentioned that Lori believed she was a god, she was carrying out this great work, and that Christ was coming again in July 2020. And that's the first time we get this date that Chad and Lori believe Christ is coming back and it's coming up. 
And then, of course, he mentioned that she had threatened his life if he tried to stop her. Lori was never served with this order of protection, in spite of numerous tries. Charles had heard Lori was going to Boise, Idaho for an event, so he even tried to have her served at the airport and at the event, but she never showed up to either. On February 8th, Charles filed for divorce. He had JJ for about a week at this point, and Lori only made contact once. She called JJ's school on February 6th to see if he was there. She didn't ask to see him or ask how he was. She wanted to know if he was there. So now Charles is worried that she's going to show up at the school and take him. Of course, with no divorce filing, there's no temporary custody. So he went in to file for divorce. The same day Charles filed for divorce, he changed the beneficiary of his life insurance policy away from Lori. His attorney advised him to do so based on Lori's threats on his life. And then Lori largely went off the grid with Tylee. She ended up going to Hawaii, but Charles did not know that. When she arrived on the island, she called a friend named April, who she knew from when she and Charles lived there. Lori told April that she had left Charles and she needed a place to stay with Tylee. On the Dateline episode, April characterized Lori as disorganized and manic. And Tylee as pretty much just staying in bed a lot of the time like she was depressed. While staying with April, Lori said that Charles had been cheating on her and he had been violent, none of which lined up with what April knew about Charles. But, you know, we don't always know people. We don't know what's going on in someone's home. But then, Lori said, Charles had died and a demon took over his body. And later she changed it to Charles was alive, but the demon was still controlling his body. Lori kept talking about gathering the 144,000, and she said April was one of them. So now April was, of course, worried, and she was alarmed over Lori's behavior and how much she had changed, which really echoes what Annie thought back in May 2018 when she had seen Lori. Lori stayed in Hawaii for two months, and then she just suddenly left and went back to the mainland at the end of March. While Lori was gone, Charles actually had the divorce proceedings dismissed. It's not clear what made him do so. Some family has indicated he wanted to reconcile with Lori, but at this point, she was completely out of touch with him, and Charles moved himself and JJ to Houston, Texas, the day after the divorce proceedings were dismissed in Arizona. So my guess is he dismissed them so that he could leave the state without having to deal with custody issues and jurisdictional issues. When Lori and Tylee returned from Hawaii, they moved to Houston and lived with Charles and JJ again. According to Lori, it was because Charles had begged her to come back. Then around June 20th, Lori moved into a rental home in Chandler, Arizona. She said Charles had rented the home for her there because they were separating and Lori wanted to be closer to her family. Charles planned to get an apartment in the area so they could co-parent. Lori called the specialized private school that JJ had attended before when they lived in Arizona 
and she enrolled him in their summer school program. And I mention this because it shows that Lori had some type of custody agreement with Charles, and the agreement was that J.J. was going to live with her in Arizona. In the background of all of this, one of Lori and Alex's nieces, Melanie Bordeaux, told her husband Brandon of 11 years that she wanted a divorce. The year before, Brandon said Melanie had also gotten involved with the same end-of-days group that Lori and Alex were in, though she would later deny this. Brandon believes that this is why she wanted the divorce. Now, we're going to put a pin in it because we are going to get back to it. So on July 10th, 2019, Charles arrived from Texas to Arizona to visit with JJ and to look at apartments. On July 11th in the morning, he drove over to the Chandler house Lori was living in. His plan was to pick up JJ and take him to school. He wasn't there long before Alex Cox made a 911 call telling authorities that he had just shot his brother-in-law in self-defense. When police arrived at the house, they found Charles inside, shot twice in the chest. Alex was the only other person there, and he told the police that he had spent the night there and his sister, niece, and nephew who lived there had left before the shooting to take the kids to school. While the police were still at the house, Lori arrived. She had Tylee with her, but not JJ. She already knew what happened to Charles. This was no news to her because she admitted that they were actually home when the shooting occurred, regardless of what Alex said. And according to Lori, Charles came over to bring JJ to school, and when he was putting him in his truck, he realized he forgot his cell phone inside the house. When he went into the house to get it, he caught Lori snooping through it. The two got into an argument, one loud enough that Tylee overheard it in her room. Tylee grabbed a baseball bat to defend her mom and went out into the living room. At one point, she pointed the bat at Charles as to say, back up, and Charles took the bat from her. At this point, Alex tried to intervene, and Charles hit him in the head with the bat, and at some point, Alex got his gun and shot Charles to stop him from attacking them. While Alex called 911, Lori decided the best thing would be to take JJ to school and get him away from the scene and stick to his routine. Now, the investigators were initially suspicious of this story. Charles was a big and fit guy, but the injury to Alex's head from the bat was a small cut. If it was from being hit with a bat, he certainly wasn't hit very hard. And Lori came across as entirely unconcerned, completely unemotional about what was going on, or that Charles was dead, or that her daughter had just been in the situation. Lori, Alex, and Tylee were all taken to the police station for formal interviews. In Lori's formal statement, she aired some of the marital problems she had with Charles, claiming that he treated Tylee horribly. She also said this was only the second time he had come to see JJ in the three weeks they were in Arizona, and that he gave her hardly any notice. She had told him he couldn't stay at the house because he and Tylee fought too much. Lori also explained why she had left JJ with Charles earlier that year. She said Charles threatened to make it so that she would only have supervised visits with JJ if they divorced. 
she decided to disappear and leave JJ with Charles full time to show Charles what it would be like to have to be the primary caretaker of a special needs six year old, like she had been doing all this time that Charles was working and traveling. She said she knew Charles would change his mind about custody once he did the heavy lifting of parenting JJ. And that's exactly what, according to her, happened. Lori did not mention that she cleared out the bank accounts and stole a whole bunch of money. She downplayed how long she was gone, saying it was like a month when it was actually two months. And she left out all of her doomsday beliefs. She left out Charles being possessed by a demon. She left all of that out when she was airing her laundry with the police. Now, as for the shooting, she said on the morning of the shooting, Charles showed up around 7.40 to pick JJ up. He was picking him up that early because he was going to go to breakfast before school. When Charles had come back inside for his phone, the fight was escalating because Lori had seen that Charles was texting with a brother of hers who she was estranged from. Lori said Charles went ballistic over her looking in his phone, and this wasn't the first time she had seen Charles's temper like that. She said that she, Tylee, and JJ had left at least five times to go to a hotel when Charles' temper had flared and he would grab and shove her. He put his hands on Tylee at some point. She also said that when her older son Colby was 16, Charles was in a physical fight with him. So Lori had a reason to believe that Charles may physically hurt them as he's getting more and more angry. She said when Tylee came out with the bat and Charles took it from her, it was with enough force that it knocked Tylee over. And so she's on the ground and Charles was about to hit her with the bat. That's when Alex jumped in, stopped him from hitting Tylee, and they had their physical altercation. At this point, Lori told Tylee to get up and get out of the house, go to the car with JJ. He's still outside through all of this. After Tylee was out of the house, somehow Alex was free of Charles and Charles was about to attack Lori with the bat. Lori ran out of the room to get away from Charles and then she heard the gunshots. She said she didn't know if Alex had the gun on him or if he had to go to his room to get it first. According to Alex's first statement to police, he did go to his room to get it. Basically, Lori is saying that Alex shot Charles because he was attempting to attack all three people in that house. Now, Tylee's statement started with her waking up to the yelling, and it went on to support what Lori said, that Charles had been violent before, that she had fallen backwards because Charles grabbed the bat so hard. She confirmed that she was out of the house when the shooting happened. Colby, who's Lori's adult son, he was not interviewed at the time. He wasn't there. He hadn't lived at home in a while. He wasn't a witness. But he would later tell the media that Charles was a good father figure and not violent, in spite of Lori saying that the two had a physical altercation before. As far as I can tell, Alex's formal statement from the police station has not been released. But there are a number of inconsistencies with what he told police at the scene and what Lori said. For one, he said that Lori and the kids were not home when the attack occurred, and of course, we know they were. 
Then he said that he was staying at the house as some sort of vacation, even though he lived maybe a half hour away. But then Lori said he was there because she knew Charles had come into town the night before and she was afraid he would show up. Alex also made it sound, at least initially, that Charles had hit him with the bat once, but Lori made it sound like Charles was beating Alex while Alex was on the ground. But aside from that one small cut, it doesn't seem like there were signs that Alex had been hurt. So then when police drove Tylee, Alex, and Lori back home after they gave their statements, Lori was chatting away with the officers about life. She was mentioning how Tylee was going to BYU-Hawaii soon, and it just seemed so out of place for someone who just saw a person being shot to death. Her emotional response to the officers seemed way, way off. It seemed, like Annie had seen, devoid of emotion. So the police were suspicious. Friends were suspicious. Family was suspicious. But with Lori and Tylee backing up Alex on the self-defense angle and no evidence to prove they were lying, building a case would be difficult. From my understanding, they didn't necessarily close out this investigation, but they weren't really moving forward very quickly on it either. So that afternoon, after they got back from the police station, Lori had a pool party at the house the house where her estranged husband had just been killed. The next day, she got around to telling Charles's family about his death, and she did it through text. Even his adult children, who she had some sort of relationship with, she just sent them texts. And when they asked how their dad died, she said they were still waiting on the ME report. Now, Lori knew that Charles had been shot in the chest twice, She knew how and why he died. There was no need to wait on a report, but she lied to them. The sons kept texting her, and she responded to very few texts. When she told her son Colby about how Charles died, she also lied to him. So the way Charles's boys found out that their father was shot to death was that their mother, who was Charles's ex-wife, looked it up online and saw that it was classified as a homicide. That day or the next, Lori called the insurance company to file a claim for Charles's million-dollar policy. That's when she found out that Charles had taken her off the policy, and the new beneficiary was his sister Kay, JJ's grandmother. At some point, Lori texted Kay something like, five kids and a sister gets everything, with a picture of the beneficiary page of the policy that had Kay's name on it. And in case you've lost count, The five children Lori's referring to here are Charles's two older sons, her older son Colby, Ty Lee, and JJ. Since Lori had tried to file the claim on her own behalf, it seems she did believe she was still the one to collect on it. But then it seems she was even more angry when she found out that Charles didn't turn it over to any of the children. It was to his sister. In late July, early August, J.J.'s school did call the Department of Child Safety. The reason was that they had just learned that Charles's death came out of a family dispute because Lori had told them that Charles had taken his own life. It's the school's policy to make a report when they suspect family violence, so that is why it was made. There is no indication 
that they gave any other concerns to DCS. So this report seems to be more a matter of policy and procedure than a direct concern. Around this time, Lori listed JJ's service dog, Bailey, for sale on Animal Direct, claiming that Bailey's owner had recently died. JJ's dog was a trained service dog to help JJ manage anxiety, meltdowns, and even just help him stay asleep through the night by staying close by. JJ was still actively using this dog for support. Anyone who has used a service dog knows that the training is quite expensive and you don't just sell them to someone online. The trainer got wind of this and took Bailey back because that's another thing about service dogs. The contracts usually forbid this type of private sale. You will be happy to know that Bailey was placed with a new family and he is currently helping another autistic child. On August 10th, Kay and Larry FaceTimed with JJ, which was the main way they kept in touch with their grandson. Kay said the call lasted about 35 seconds, and JJ kept looking off the screen. They were concerned he was being coached. Then suddenly, he said he had to go. When they didn't hear from him or Lori for a few weeks, Kay and Larry called JJ's school in Arizona to make sure he was okay. Shortly after this, Lori told her older son Colby that she, Tylee, and JJ were moving the very next day. And on August 31st, they left Arizona for Rexburg, Idaho. Lori gave a few people a few different reasons for the move. On September 5th, she emailed JJ's school saying that she moved out of state for a job. Then she told someone else that she moved to Rexburg to attend school. Then she told someone else that it was so that Tylee could go to school there. But it was more likely that she was moving to Rexburg to be closer to Chad Daybell because, remember, he decided that is where they were going to wait out the apocalypse. Her brother Alex and niece Melanie followed her up there, and they found three apartments in the same complex. Melanie, though, was still back and forth to Arizona because her divorce and custody of her four small kids was not yet settled. On September 8th, 2019, Lori and Alex took Tylee and JJ to Yellowstone, and they took a picture in front of the entrance. This is the last point police can confirm Tylee was with Lori and she was alive. No one has come forward to claim they saw Tylee after this picture was taken. There's no more recent photos. There's nothing. We can't say for sure when Tylee went missing, but it was very likely between the September 8th photograph and the 17th. Because on September 18th, Lori met with a nanny that she found through care.com. She told the nanny that they had just moved to Rexburg and that JJ's dad had died of a heart attack. Lori said she had an older daughter who was going to BYU-Idaho, but she didn't like to babysit unless she was getting paid. She said her daughter only came by for dinner every so often and to do her laundry. This comment and the lack of any sign of Tylee's things in the apartment made the nanny assume that Tylee was living on campus. And the nanny was not the only one who heard the BYU-Idaho story. Neighbors and friends were told Tylee was going there, but a check of the records 
showed she was never enrolled. The day after the interview, the nanny came over to babysit in the evening. Lori said that if she was late coming home to go ahead and give JJ his medication right before he went to bed because it made him very tired and he would just fall asleep very quickly if he took it right before bed. Then Lori made a joke that she would sometimes give JJ his medicine early so that he would go to bed early on particularly rough days with his behavior. This appears to be the only day, from what I can tell, that the babysitter worked. JJ spent most of his time after school playing outside, unsupervised, and the neighbors were taking notice. Not only was JJ alone outside for long periods, he was showing behavioral issues. He would dump toys into puddles, he would yell swear words at other kids, tell them to get out of here, and the neighbors were concerned. One of the neighbors decided to talk to Lori about the situation, and Lori told them that J.J. was, quote, a niece's drug baby and never mentioned that J.J. had autism. Why in the world would you ever refer to your child as a niece's drug baby like that? Now, I will appreciate that this story is being given to us out of context, this comment is being given to us out of context. But it feels like she's distancing herself from JJ. This doesn't seem like a very empathetic way to refer to JJ's struggles. Because of JJ's behavior, the neighbors who had ring doorbells kept the footage of JJ being impulsive, irritable, and most importantly, unsupervised. No one came out and said it, but I'm thinking some of them were trying to decide if it was time to call CPS or not. Now, I'm curious about the timeline of when the neighbor talked to Lori and if the babysitter was called shortly after that. The family has said that Tylee was like another mother figure to JJ. She was babysitting him all the time. She was looking out for him. If Tylee was gone, JJ's time left unsupervised may have increased. And now it's drawing the attention of the neighbors, and that might be why Lori decided to hire a babysitter. On September 24th, the nanny reached out to Lori about working again because Lori had made it sound like the position was an ongoing one. Lori told her that she herself was in Hawaii and JJ was with his grandparents for the month. She said she'd contact the nanny again when they were back in Rexburg, and of course, she never did. The last time J.J. was seen was on September 23rd when he attended school. On the 24th, the same day, Lori told the nanny that she sent J.J. to his grandparents' house and she herself was in Hawaii. Lori withdrew J.J. from school, saying that she was going to start homeschooling him. She was in Rexburg and she made no mention of him going to Louisiana to be with his grandparents. It is disturbing to me how, in such a short time, Lori was able to isolate herself and her children to the point that multiple family members didn't know they moved to Idaho, didn't know that there was no sign Tylee was in that apartment, they had no idea JJ had been withdrawn from school. Now, part of why this was passed off is that Tylee's phone was still in some contact with people, including her brother Colby. 
On Ty Lee's 17th birthday, which was September 28th, Colby sent her a happy birthday text. He made a supportive comment about how she had been through a lot, but she would make it. And she replied with, thanks, Colbs, I love you. This text hit Colby wrong immediately, according to an interview he gave on the Dr. Phil show. The text was short, which wasn't like Tylee, and it had no emojis in it. Tylee always used emojis when texting, always. So Colby replied to her asking if she was okay, and she said she was good. She was just tired and would call him later. And of course, she never did. There are more texts where he's asking her to call him, and she's saying, I'm in a movie, I'm busy, I can't call. And that's just how it was. Every time Colby would call Tylee in September and October, she wouldn't answer. And then she would always have some excuse why she couldn't call him back. He was worried that she was struggling with all this stuff because it wasn't like her to not want to talk with him or to FaceTime with him. She loved to see Colby's baby on FaceTime. So now looking back, he can see it likely wasn't Tylee texting him. But at the time, why would you think that? The real thought would be she's depressed, she's struggling, she's been through so much, a lot of instability with Lori moving around with Charles's death. I mean, why would your first thought be someone else is sending these texts? I mean, they really wouldn't be. Colby was also in contact with Lori at the time, who was making it sound like everything was okay. So there's been a lot of speculation online over some money that was sent from Tylee to Colby through Venmo in the same time period she was missing. And for those who don't know, Venmo is a social media-style money exchange app. So unless you mark the transaction private, people on your feed can see that you sent money to someone and whatever comment you put under it. They cannot see the amount, just that a transaction happened. So people who found Tylee's account noticed she had a few transactions after she went missing, and they were all to Colby. Colby has since explained that these were from Lori, and he knew they were from Lori. Lori did not have her own Venmo account. She wasn't into technology, and it just seemed easier to just use Tylee's existing account. So that was all normal, and the Venmo activity has been explained, even though it keeps coming up. The text messages, though, those are not explained. Anyway, on October 1st, Lori Vallow rented a 10 by 10 storage unit at a local self-storage place in Rexburg. If you've been following the case, I'm sure you've seen the security footage, and it is, frankly, creepy, because you know her kids are missing at this point, and you're watching her and other people move in and out these heavy totes. This was eight days after JJ was last seen that Lori rented this unit. So over the next month, you're watching these people come and go multiple times carrying heavy things, some things they put in only for the next day to look like they're taking it back out. Now, there are two visits that are very important to our timeline. On October 2nd and 3rd, Lori returned to the unit with a man 
who looks like her brother Alex. Now, if it was him, it means he was in Rexburg both of those days. And this is important because someone accused Alex of trying to kill him in Arizona on October 2nd. So now we're going to bring up the niece again, Melanie Bordeaux. Her ex-husband, Brandon, was getting out of his car in his driveway on October 2nd when he heard a sound that he said sounded like a paintball gun. He heard a whizzing noise and his car window shattered. It wasn't a paintball gun. It was actually a rifle with a silencer. He then saw a green Jeep with Texas plates speeding off, and it was a car he recognized because it was Tylee's car, and it was registered to Charles Vallow. Tylee's missing, and Charles is dead. So who was driving this car? Brandon thought it was Alex Cox. But either the man at the storage unit in Rexburg was Alex, or the man who tried to shoot Brandon was Alex. Now, I'm not sure the timestamps on everything to know if Alex could have been in both places on the same day. But if he went to Arizona to kill someone, he very likely did not fly. That would leave a record. But it's a 14-hour drive nonstop. So I don't think it's very likely he was in both states on the same day. After the attempt on his life, Brandon went into hiding with his four kids, and he hired a private investigator. He wanted to locate his ex-wife and Alex. The investigator went out to Melanie's house in Arizona, and when he got there, he found all of her kids' belongings out on the curb with a sign that said free on it, and Melanie was gone. With the information Brandon gave to the police, the Gilbert police did ask the Rexburg, Idaho police to help them locate the Jeep, either in Lori or Alex's possession. In order to recover this Jeep, they did surveil Lori. Though they were not looking for Tylee or JJ at this point, the officers report that they did not see her with either child in this time. The Jeep was eventually taken into police possession in November. Brandon believes the attempt on his life was an attempt to get money, since the divorce was not final yet. Melanie would get everything as his widow, plus his life insurance, and that was money Melanie could use to fund this doomsday cult group she was in, according to Brandon, of course. This is just his theory. Melanie said this is not the case. She had nothing to do with the attempt on his life, that Brandon had shady business deals, and he had other people who would have wanted him dead because of it. She also said that during the marriage, she confronted Brandon about a pornography addiction and affairs, and that he threatened to attack her and get custody of the kids. So according to Melanie, that's what this is. He's maligning her in the media. He's pointing the finger at her family for the shooting in order to keep her kids away from her. But Brandon is really pushing this cult angle in his ongoing custody fight with Melanie. He currently has their four kids, and Melanie is going to court for joint custody. But in his court filings, Brandon has said his children are in danger because members of the cult and those close to them are, in his words, 
being killed off like flies. And we are not done yet. We need to pick up a timeline thread that we dropped, that of Chad Daybell and his wife, Tammy. So Lori is now in Rexburg with her favorite podcast partner, author, and spiritual leader, Chad. Chad is married, but his five children are grown. The youngest of the five is serving as a missionary, which puts him in his late teens or early 20s. On October 4th, Tammy took a short trip down to Springville, Utah to visit her family, see her parents, and she went at the urging of Chad. He had communicated with their ancestors. I'm not entirely sure why, but he was spiritually prompted to encourage Tammy to take this trip. She didn't stay gone long because she was back in Rexburg on October 9th. We know this because she called the police on this day. This was exactly one week after Brandon had been shot at in Arizona. Tammy posted about what happened on Facebook, so we know the story in her own words. And she basically said that a man with a ski mask was standing behind her car and shot at her with a paintball gun. And if you remember, Brandon also thought he was shot at with a paintball gun, but of course his was an actual gun. Tammy was not hurt in this, and when the sheriff came out, he couldn't find any signs of a shooting at the house. So it was kind of chalked up to some teenager being mischievous, pulling a prank on Tammy, and that what he actually fired at her was an empty paintball gun. Nine days after this incident, Tammy went to bed with a nasty cough. It would have been October 18th, and Tammy never woke up. Chad called for help on the morning of October 19th. The death scene was investigated, and Chad was interviewed. According to what we know, he seemed appropriately grief-stricken, but the 911 call has not been released. No body cam footage, if the police were wearing it, has been released. None of that. So we can't hear it for ourselves, but I think we can trust the investigators here. The death was ruled natural causes, even though Tammy was a healthy 49-year-old, and no autopsy was done. There are some reports out there that the family insisted no autopsy be done, but from what I understand, the family doesn't actually have a say if the medical examiner or the coroner or the police or whoever's investigating this found the death suspicious. The family wouldn't be able to stop an autopsy from going forward. But it was determined not to do one, and Tammy was buried in Springville, Utah, near her family. A friend of Chad's, an author that used to publish under his publishing company, named Julie Rowe, has done a few interviews about a conversation she had with Chad just three weeks before Tammy's death. It's hard to pinpoint what was said, because the story isn't always consistent. What has been consistent is that years before, Chad and Julie both had visions of Tammy dying. In this phone call three weeks before Tammy's death, 
Chad reiterated to Julie that he knew Tammy was going to die because of these visions. He also said that he wanted to close down the publishing company, but that Tammy didn't want to. And Chad said that he would close it down when Tammy died. In another interview, Julie Rowe said that he actually was frustrated and said something about how he couldn't move forward with his plan until Tammy was dead. And that sounds a lot more ominous than, well, after Tammy passes away, I will get rid of the publishing company. Like, being frustrated that his plan can't move forward. That sounds a lot more threatening. Now, Julie first defended Chad in the earlier interviews, saying that he would never have hurt Tammy, and that she saw in visions her angels had told her that he did not hurt Tammy. But as the interviews progressed, Julie seemed to waver a little bit, and then she started saying that this last conversation she had with Chad actually disturbed her. So her view on this may have changed over the last couple of months, and that's not unusual. I mean, nobody is locked into an opinion for the rest of their lives. But what has been consistent between Julie's interviews is that three weeks before Tammy died, Chad was talking about her death as though it would happen soon. Now, in the meantime, we have Tylee's phone still texting people. She texted a friend that she missed her and loved her. This one seems odd to the friend because the response was so short. It was written with some abbreviations that Tylee didn't typically use. And it was also sent weeks after the friend had initially texted. And Tylee wasn't a late responder like that. She tended to text back right away. Now, I'm going to touch on something else in the timeline here that is not confirmed. I usually don't bring these in unless they're repeated often, and that's the case with this one. It's according to the Daily Mail that Chad Daybell was excommunicated from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for declaring himself a prophet. While this could have happened, and some of Chad's teachings may put him on the list for church discipline because it is contrary to the doctrines of the church, this cannot be confirmed. The church does not make records public like this. Also, this is the Daily Mail. We know that they print whatever comes across their desk. They don't always check for a second source. It's not clear if they actually had someone leak this information to them, someone in the church, or if they're just running with a rumor that someone called in as a tip. We do not know. In the grand scheme of things, in the context of this case, it also probably doesn't matter. So now after Tammy's death, Chad and Lori made their relationship public, though we don't know the full nature of it from before Tammy's death. They had something going on, though, because just two weeks after Tammy's death, Chad and Lori were married in Hawaii. Chad also made a claim for and received at least $430,000 in life insurance for Tammy's death. Chad's family knew pretty much nothing about Lori at this point, and they had a bit of whiplash that he remarried just two weeks after his wife of nearly 
30 years had died. Remarriage shortly after the death of a spouse is not necessarily uncommon for widowers, but two weeks, that is short by any measure. Chad told his parents and his sister that Lori didn't have any minor children and that she was an empty nester like he was. The couple also told someone else that Lori had a daughter, but she had died in 2017. There was no mention of JJ and no mention that Lori had moved to Idaho with these minor children in her custody just a couple of months before. In the background of all of this, we have a set of very worried and very upset grandparents, Kay and Larry. They hadn't heard from JJ since that very short August 10th FaceTime call, and Lori had cut them off from contact. They knew the family had moved, but they had no idea where, so they couldn't even call for a welfare check. Of course, their assumption was that Lori was playing keep away with JJ, not that he was missing, and they wanted to reestablish this contact. In mid-November, Kay had an idea. She logged into Charles's Gmail account. She guessed the password because he was one of those guys who only used a few passwords that he rotated through. First try, she got into the account. She saw a lot of recent activity, all shipping notices from Amazon. She clicked on those and was able to get Lori's address in Rexburg. She called one of the detectives in Chandler, one of the guys who had investigated Charles's death, and she asked him how to get a welfare check done on JJ. He assured her that he would handle it. He called up to Rexburg, explained the situation, and asked for this welfare check. According to Dateline, it took Rexburg PD about two weeks to actually go out to Lori's place. But according to some court documents, they actually went the day after they got the call. So who knows here? On November 24th, Lori and a man who appeared to be Chad Daybell were seen at the storage unit for the last time dropping off children's bikes. And then on November 26th, the Rexburg police went out to Lori's home for the welfare check. Alex and Chad were outside the home, and the officers started talking to them and asking about Lori. Chad played it like he really didn't know her, he didn't even know her phone number. And at this point, they had been married for about three weeks, but the police, of course, don't know this. Alex told the officers that seven-year-old JJ was with his grandparents in Louisiana, which they knew was a lie, because it was the grandparents in Louisiana who called for the welfare check. The police really wanted to talk to Lori, so Alex told them that she was in apartment number 107. They went to that apartment, and it was completely empty. No one even lived there. So now the police have these two adults at the scene, and they don't really feel like they're cooperating. So they call into the station to get help out to the apartment to search for JJ. Now, shortly after the call, while they're still waiting, Chad tried to drive off, but one of the officers stopped him and asked him where 
J.J. was. That's all they were there for. All they needed to do was see J.J. and see that he was okay. Chad said the last time he saw J.J., he was in that empty apartment. And then he admitted that he did know Lori and he gave them her phone number. Now, the police finally found Lori in her actual apartment, which is number 175. Well, now that they have Lori, they ask her where J.J. is. And Lori said J.J. was living with a friend named Melanie Gibb back in Arizona. And Melanie is another one of the End of Times podcast friends. Lori gave the police Melanie's phone number, but she did not answer when they called. Lori said she was at a movie with J.J., and the police told her to have Melanie call them. When Melanie didn't call that evening, they had an officer in Arizona go out to her house. When they got there, she wasn't home, but she did eventually make contact with police, and she said J.J. had not been in her house for months. Now, she didn't offer this little tidbit right away, but it would later come out that Lori and Chad had both separately called Melanie after the police had shown up for that welfare check and asked her to say she had J.J., even though she didn't, and she told them she would not do it. She was not going to lie to the authorities. Now, the police have two stories that are not true. J.J. was with his grandparents, and J.J. was with Melanie. Not only that, but they realized there was supposed to be a second child in that home, 17-year-old Tylee. The police got search warrants on three apartments, Lori's, Alex's, and their niece, Melanie's. When they got to Lori's place on November 27th, the next day, to execute the search warrant, she was gone. There was some furniture left behind, but her personal belongings were cleared out. Lori and Chad had bolted after that welfare check. A search of the apartment found that JJ's medication, Risperidone, was left behind. It had been last filled in Arizona in January, and there were 17 pills left. This medication helps with JJ's irritability. A check of records showed that this prescription was never refilled in Idaho. JJ's behavior that the neighbors had seen, plus 17 pills left on a 10-month-old prescription? This shows that Lori, at some point, either stopped giving JJ this medication entirely, or she was giving it to him inconsistently at best. The police also found out about Lori's storage unit and executed a search warrant there. They found the children's bikes. They found baby pictures, quilts, just the sort of mementos that you don't leave behind or get rid of. Lori would eventually lapse in paying for the unit, which means she forfeited these belongings. And these are her kids' baby pictures. There is nothing in the reporting about cadaver dogs at the storage unit, but I would assume they were brought in after the CCTV footage was pulled and they could see heavy totes being moved in and then out of that unit. 
Another thing police did pretty much right away was go to Colby's house to ask if he had seen Tylee or JJ. Did he know where they were? When was the last time he heard from them? And this is the first he is hearing that there's anything suspicious going on and that his siblings are missing. He told the police he didn't even know where they were living at that point, and he hadn't talked to them to where he could verify it was them since August 30th. After the police left, Colby called his mom, and he told her the police had come by. He wanted to know what was going on, and Lori told him, don't worry about it, and she would handle it. This is the last time Lori spoke to Colby. Everything Colby knows about his brother and his sister after this point is what we all know from the media reports. Two days after Chad and Lori left Rexburg, and the police aren't sure where they are at this point, 51-year-old Alex Cox got married to 55-year-old Zulema Pastenes in Las Vegas. He took her last name after the marriage. Zulema was, at some point, a life and relationship coach. She was also an emotion code practitioner. And emotion code practitioners, this is basically the idea that past emotions that we're holding on to can cause us physical and emotional issues going forward. Zulema's work would be in helping people let go of those. It's in the realm of energy healing. Zulema was also a member of the Chad Daybell group or the podcast group or whatever you want to call it. I really honestly hesitate to call it a cult at this point. But she is part of this end of times group. And Lori told her friend in Hawaii that Zulema had powers and could control the elements. The officiant at Alex and Zulema's wedding told Fox 10 News that there wasn't much emotion or sentimentality at the wedding. It was like they were treating it as a business transaction. The following day, Melanie the niece also got married to a recently divorced man named Ian Palowski, who was from Rexburg. He had been divorced since July. So not as recently as Melanie, whose divorce was finalized less than two weeks before she got remarried. It's not clear Ian's connection to Chad or his group, or if he even had one. The only connection is that he did live in Rexburg. Melanie was also dealing with legal issues at this point. She and Alex were being investigated for the attempt on Brandon's life. And then she was arrested earlier in November, after she twice trespassed on her in-law's property. She showed up claiming she had a court order to take her kids back, which she did not have. Alex Cox drove her to the property in Utah to get the kids both times, and when she did get arrested, he ended up bailing her out of jail. So now this is getting tense. Lori took her kids and left Arizona for Rexburg, and now the kids were missing. And here we have Melanie trying to take her kids and go to Rexburg, but the police stopped her from doing so. I do find it odd that right after the police realized that Tylee and JJ were gone and started investigating Alex and Melanie in relation to this, they both got married, like within days. 
And so when I hear about a sudden marriage during an investigation, I just think spousal privilege, meaning if Zulema or Ian knew something, they couldn't testify against their spouses. But that wouldn't actually help in this case because Idaho's spousal privilege law has some exceptions. One is it only pertains to things said during the marriage, not before. Getting married doesn't cancel out what you knew before. And it also specifically excludes anything pertaining to a child's welfare and safety. The statute does not specify that the children have to be the children of either spouse. Any child's welfare and safety is included in this. So spousal privilege doesn't help them at all. But it still seems odd that they're facing this huge missing child investigation. They're suspects in Brandon's attack, and their next step in life is to go get married. Okay, so let's sum up where we are right now. Lori has four ex-husbands, and two of them are dead. She has three kids, and two of them are missing. Chad was a widower of two weeks. When he remarried a woman, he told people didn't have minor children when she did. And then there is Alex, who assaulted one of Lori's exes, shot the other, and was now the prime suspect in shooting at his niece's husband. And we are still not done. On December 11th, Tammy's remains were exhumed for an autopsy to be performed and a cause of death established. The results are pending. One of Tammy and Chad's daughters posted about this on Reddit. I want to thank my friend Cassie for alerting me to it because it has since been deleted. The daughter said that the rumors and accusations against her father were spearheaded by an aunt based on Chad remarrying so quickly after Tammy's death. She said that her new stepmother has actually helped their family grieve. And not only does Chad miss Tammy, but he still would speak of her frequently. So it's not like he just moved on with the new wife. But the point of her post was not her dad. It was that authorities did not notify the family about the exhumation. She found out about it when she went to the cemetery to visit her mother's grave. I understand the need to protect an investigation. The exhumation happened before the general public was informed about Lori's missing kids, so it's possible the Daybell children may not have known that there was more to this investigation, more to the story, than that their aunt was gossiping and butting into private business. They may not have known that. If they didn't know about that, I imagine they were completely blindsided when they went to their mother's grave and it had been disturbed. That is absolutely awful for them. And I really hate that they learned about the investigation the way they did. Now, the day after Tammy was exhumed, the very next day, at 3.20 p.m., 25-year-old Joseph Lopez called 911 in Gilbert, Arizona. He had found Alex Cox passed out in the bathroom. Alex was still breathing when Joseph found him, but over the course of the 911 call, 
Joseph is reporting that Alex stopped breathing. Zulema arrived at some point while the dispatchers were still on the line, and she started doing CPR. Joseph was Zulema's son. He identified Alex as his mom's boyfriend, apparently unaware that his mother had gotten married to Alex two weeks before. He didn't know how old Alex was or his last name or much of the information 911 was asking for. Alex was unable to be revived, and the results of his autopsy are pending. Everything we've talked about so far, this is all happening largely out of the public eye. The press release about the missing children didn't come until December 20th, 2019. In it, the police linked the disappearance of the kids to Tammy's suspicious death and said Lori was not cooperating. The next day, they announced that Chad and Lori were persons of interest. When Colby heard about the press release, nearly a month after he last talked to his mother, he tried to call her again. Lori's phone number was disconnected, and he had no other way to reach her. On December 23rd, Chad's Idaho attorney made a statement. He is a criminal defense attorney, having previously defended Melanie's new husband, Ian, in a domestic violence case. The attorney said that Chad was a loving husband and has the support of his children. He then said Lori was a devoted mother and resents assertions to the contrary. He went on to say that they looked forward to addressing the allegations once they have moved beyond speculation and rumor. But Chad and Lori didn't seem too eager since they remained in hiding. Rumors started going around that the kids were being hidden due to a custody battle, but the police were quick to dismiss this. Not only was there no custody battle on file with the courts, the fathers of both children were dead, so Lori would be the default custodial parent. Police searched Chad's home. They took computers, journals, medication, cell phones. They were looking not just into the kid's disappearance at this point, of course, but also Tammy's death. Tips started coming in that the couple was laying low in Hawaii. They were being covertly watched by police as they rented a townhouse across the street from the house where Lori and Charles lived for two years. On January 25th, the authorities showed up to deliver a court order to Lori. It was compelling her to produce both Tylee and JJ to the Idaho Department of Welfare, and she was given a deadline of five days. The next day, the police executed search warrants on Chad and Lori's rental car and the condo they were staying in. In the car, they found JJ's iPad with his expensive apps designed for his needs, and they found a second iPad that was, for some reason, logged into JJ's Apple account. For reasons known only to Lori, she had also been logging into JJ's old school account. You know, that parent portal type account? She logged in five times since he had last been seen. Police also found Tylee's bank card, which had been used since she had gone missing. And both Tylee and JJ's birth certificates were in the car. So that was what was in the car. 
the findings in the apartment they rented eliminated any chance that they were hiding the kids with them. Police found two of everything, two lawn chairs, two beach towels, two exercise mats, and absolutely no toys or games or kid stuff. The condo was a two-bedroom, but the second bedroom appeared unused. Another thing that was found was Tylee's cell phone. The reporting does not specify where it was found exactly, just that Lori had it. During this five-day window that Lori was given to produce the kids, Larry and Kay filed for custody of JJ. Their hope was that when Lori showed up with the kids, they would have a chance not just at seeing JJ, but also taking him home. They told the media that they would be happy to take Tylee as well, but they had no legal standing to file since she was a step-niece to them. And it definitely seems like Tylee has some extended family, even her brother, who would take her in if she was removed from her mother's custody. The day before Lori was expected in Idaho to prove the kids were alive and well, she and Chad moved out of their rental and into a beach resort. Reporters were watching them like a hawk on the island, and it was clear they were making no moves towards the airport to return to Idaho. So with Lori clearly not going to Idaho, the hope now is that whoever she gave them to would show up in court with them. But on January 30th, the day of the deadline, no one showed up in court with the kids. Lori failed to give any proof even that they were alive. She didn't do a FaceTime call. She didn't do a photograph with the day's newspaper. Nothing. Everyone following this case waited for her to now be arrested. And then nothing happened. There was a lot of speculation as to why she wasn't arrested. One theory was that not producing the kids wasn't that serious of a crime to charge her with. It was contempt of court. Would they even go to the trouble of extraditing her for something so minor? Another thought was that they were watching her and hoping the pressure would make her or Chad slip up and give something away. But the only thing she and Chad seemed to be doing in Hawaii was relaxing. Lori was also still logging into JJ's Arizona school account, even though he hadn't been to that school since late August. So what was she looking for? Now, I'm curious if this is a boring parent portal, like the one I have with my kids, where all I see are announcements and grades and I can pay lunch accounts on. Or is this one of those websites with the artwork and the photographs posted? Because I have another login for a site like that. So now if it was the latter, the one with the artwork and the pictures, I can see why she would want to look at it, particularly if she was missing him. But the news report I saw about her logging in showed some screenshots of what it looked like, and it honestly looked like the boring one, the one with the updates about early release days and generic classroom happenings. Why would she care about that kind of thing? My only guess is she was looking to see if there were any announcements about police presence at the school or if they were asking for information about JJ. That's the only reason 
I can imagine that the mundane school announcements would be that interesting to her. But the school eventually noticed that she was logging in, and on February 4th, they removed her access. To the frustration of many, Lori remained free in Hawaii. There was concern she would flee to another country that wouldn't extradite her, but according to Lori's attorney, she doesn't even have a passport. Except for a quick getaway to Maui, she stayed put. On February 18th, the Madison County Prosecuting Attorney's Office back in Idaho submitted a criminal complaint against Lori Vallow, and two days later, she was arrested. The charges were two counts desertion and non-support of dependent children. The non-support part is coming from a check of her bank accounts showing she wasn't sending money to anyone to take care of the children. And these are felony charges. She was then charged with three misdemeanors, which are contempt of court, criminal solicitation to commit a crime, and resisting or obstructing officers. Lori was given a whopping $5 million bond. To put this in perspective, Michelle Traconis, the girlfriend of Fotis Dulos, was initially given a $2 million bond. And she had the financial means to flee. She had family in another country. She had fluency in a foreign language. She was also seen on camera driving around with Fotis while he disposed of items with his ex-wife's blood on them, and her bond was less than Lori's. At the court hearing, Lori's attorney obviously tried to get this lowered. He was asking for $10,000, arguing that the seriousness of these crimes, they didn't fit for such a high bail. But the prosecution actually wanted Lori held without the chance to bond out, saying that Lori was a flight risk. She already fled from Idaho once, and due to the amount of money Chad had in the bank, she had the means to flee again. The judge in Hawaii decided to keep it at $5 million, which is what Idaho was asking for. Lori initially did not waive her right to an extradition hearing back to Idaho, which would then require them to have this formal hearing. That is generally a losing battle because there are only a few grounds that a state will not send someone back to the charging state. As long as the person has been charged with a crime and all the paperwork is done properly, the extradition will go through 99% of the time. It's not entirely clear Lori's plan with this. To me, it looked like she was trying to get her bail lowered to an amount she could pay, and then she could drag the extradition out a little bit longer so she could stay in Hawaii with Chad. I will admit I was ever so slightly hopeful that she was stalling because she was giving whoever had the kids time to make contact with the police or to get them back to Idaho. She was basically stalling because the kids were still alive somewhere and she could prove it. However, that does not appear to be what she was doing. As soon as the judge wouldn't lower her bail at a second hearing, then she waived the extradition. So Lori will be back in Idaho probably within a couple days of the release of this episode.
When I started researching this, I thought there was a fair chance the kids were stashed somewhere alive. The doomsday cult headline was stuck in my head. But the more I looked into this, I don't think there is a cult. I think Chad Daybell is the quote-unquote cult. There's no compound somewhere. There's no underground. It's him and a bunch of -of end-of-time preppers who listen to him on podcasts and go on online forums to talk about it. They're very sincere in their beliefs, even if they seem extreme, but a group of people with extreme beliefs doesn't necessarily make them a cult. That doesn't rule out the possibility that one of these people has the kids and is keeping them hidden. But there is, so far, no evidence of that. Lori was complaining to friends in Hawaii about the media hype and the media twisting things in regards to this case. But here's the thing. Lori can end all of that with one thing, a 30-second video of the kids, a FaceTime call with the kids, a photograph of the kids. Any proof of life in the media would die down. Even the state's attorney would be ready to talk a plea deal, and this would get booted to family court so that Kay and Larry and maybe Tylee's aunt and Colby, they can all fight over custody. Lori would not be in jail on a $5 million bond if she produced any proof her children were alive, and she has not done that. Why not prove that this is just hype? Is it that she won't or that she can't? Another thing sticking with me is that Tylee and JJ did not go missing together. Tylee was gone by the time the babysitter was called in. If Lori planned to stash the kids somewhere safe to wait for the end of times, why did she hire a babysitter for JJ? Why did she send him to school where she then had to come up with an excuse for his sudden absence? I don't think JJ was supposed to disappear. Whatever happened was a sudden decision on September 23rd. As far as Tylee goes, there is some conjecture that maybe she wasn't outside when Charles was shot. She knew the full story of what happened to her stepfather, and she was moved out of the way to keep her from talking. According to those who knew Tylee, she and Lori butted heads, she was strong-willed, Tylee just wasn't a kid that would just do what Lori said just because she said to do it. If she knew something or thought something was wrong, she would speak up. And of course, there is the theory that Lori, believing the end of times were going to be too awful for her kids to handle, killed them in order to save them. But I think if that were the case, they would have gone missing at the same time. I think something else happened here. But in the end, I'd be surprised if we ever got the full truth from Lori or Chad. But I do suspect the niece Melanie at least knows if the kids are alive or not. Her lawyer in her custody case said she's spoken to the FBI multiple times, she's not hiding anything, and she is cooperating. He also said she doesn't share extremist beliefs and only moved to Idaho because she was fond of her aunt Lori, which, okay. But is she more fond of Lori than she is of her own children? Because she left them in Arizona. So she moved to be with Lori. And that sounds 
more than just being close to a family member, to leave your kids behind. I would ask Melanie if protecting Chad and Lori is worth losing access to your children. Not everyone is automatically putting Chad and Lori in the guilty of something category. They have lost the support of some of the prepper community, but not all of it. There is an LDS prepper forum. It's not sanctioned by the church, but most of the people on there appear to be church members. Chad was active on it, and it is called A Vow, standing for Another Voice of Warning. And the website owner has spoken with Chad and Lori, and he said that they walked him through everything. What's been going on with Tammy's death, their quick marriage, where the kids are, and all of that. He said that the details will come out soon, but they can't go public until the legal issues are resolved. But he said the kids are fine. This is just a nasty custody battle involving a lot of money, and it is being driven by grandma, which obviously means Kay. He then said that the lame stream media will have to eat crow when the truth comes out. Okay, so custody battle, that might explain hiding JJ. But where's Tylee? At 17, she's not going to be forced to go stay with her step-aunt. Her father is deceased. Where's that custody battle? But don't worry, we have been assured by the website owner that Chad is actually writing a book about this whole saga. And like I said, the truth will come out. But as it stands, as I'm recording right now, Tylee and JJ are missing, and no proof of life has been given to the court. Tylee Ryan is 17 years old and has blonde hair and blue eyes. She's five feet tall and about 160 pounds. She was last seen at Yellowstone Park on September 8, 2019. Joshua JJ Vallow is seven years old with brown hair and brown eyes. He is four feet tall and 50 pounds. JJ has ADHD and autism and takes prescription medication. There is no evidence he has access to those medications. He was last seen in Rexburg, Idaho on September 23, 2019. If you spot Tylee or JJ, call 911 immediately. The authorities believe the children are in danger. But if you have any other information about the disappearances of Tylee and JJ, you can call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST. Thank you for listening to Crimelines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crimelines Podcast, Twitter at Crimelines Pod, and Instagram at Crimelines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at CharlieNKC. You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes, as well as a monthly bonus episode. Crime Lines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC. Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie. Charlie. 